What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. And what is Film Spotting? It's a syndicate. Most of us happen to be dentists. Hmm. Syndicate of dentists set up long ago for tax purposes. All legit. If you have to say something's legit, doesn't that pretty much make it not legit? I think all this pot is making you paranoid, Josh. You could be right about that. Martin Short as a sleazy dentist, that's just one of the colorful characters that the always high private eye Joaquin Phoenix encounters in the latest from Paul Thomas Anderson, Inherent Vice. Always high private eye, I'm pretty sure a Martin Short character from his SNL days. Our review of Inherent Vice plus this week's top five, our pre-top ten best of the rest. That and more. You know, when I joined the show, you never said anything about having to be part of a dentist syndicate. Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Film Spotting listeners, including gold level donor Patricia in Portland, Oregon. Josh, we got a very nice card and letter in the mail from Patricia. And two new $5 a month subscribers, Peter in Westminster, Colorado, and Antonio in Silver Spring, Maryland. We also want to thank silver level donor Joshua from Greenville, South Carolina. I went back and looked. He's been a pretty consistent December donor. So thank you, Joshua. And we have Bucka Show donor Holly Lillico. One of Holly's Christmas wishes was to donate to Film Spotting Josh, and we thank her very much it's for that support. a great idea. It is, isn't it? <laughs> a few more donors to give thanks to here. Roy in Alexandra Hills, that's in Australia, and Josh in Bushwick. And Josh says, I'm donating to my interstellar bro, Adam. I am firmly on Team Adam and Team Sam. Yes, Team Sam Van Hallgren on Interstellar. It's a great film. In fact, I welcome Adam and Sam on my team of scientists. Josh, since he is so wrong about Interstellar, can see two cents of this donation. Oh, that's how we're doing things now, huh? <laughs> I like it. If, if I had to make my living by the number of people who agreed with me that's a thought i would not be eating much you're listening to film spotting what happens when you have to cancel your live three-hour year-end wrap-up show you fit it into a 30-minute top five segment of course that's what you do 30 minutes really you think it's going to be 30 minutes? And with that quip, I've added another category. Next week, we'll count down our favorite films of the year. We've got Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune joining us for that, along with Scott Tobias from The Dissolve. They are our usual guests around this time of year. We'll also hear from some special guest voicemailers. This week, Josh, we're devoting the top five to everything we loved about the year in movies, except for the movies themselves. Since we did sadly have to call off the year-end rap party really just due to scheduling conflicts. Was it ever officially on? That's a good point. I mean, you can't cancel something you never scheduled. <laughs> we never did announce it, so why <laughs> no. are we saying we canceled it? It is something we've done, though. There's an we expectation. Wanted to do it. We yeah. wanted to do it. We've done it the past two years. Fun event at the main stage here on the north side of Chicago. So we're not doing it, but we didn't want to waste all the fun, all of those great categories we do usually dive into on that show. So we're going to salvage some of them, sort of, for this week's top five. I know, Josh, we're going to get to your shot of the year and your moving moment. I'm going to share my favorite action scenes in non-action movies. I like it. So it should be fun. That's all coming later in the show. But first, our review of Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice with Joaquin Phoenix as a drug-addled private eye in 1970, California. 
We'll rate it on a scale of groovy to far out. If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that. Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So wh where would I uh, find him? He's technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. You got a spare picture I could borrow? Ah! Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. I don't know about you, Josh, but the process of reviewing a Paul Thomas Anderson movie usually leaves me feeling very much like Joaquin Phoenix's private eye, Doc Sportello, in Inherent Vice. In a daze, frantically making connections, going further and further down the rabbit hole of American individualism, greed, and disillusionment. What I'm trying to say is, this movie's plot is way too confusing for me to sum up. <laughs> it's a little so, confusing. Here's my L.A. noir, neo-noir shorthand. Take the Big Lebowski's perpetually stone protagonist, add the anachronistic absurdity and culture clashing of Altman's The Long Goodbye, mix in the borderline nonsensical plot machinations of The Big Sleep, and top it all off with the pervasive corruption of Chinatown. And the result might look something like Inherent Vice, which opens the way most hard-boiled detective movies do, with an attractive woman, here Doc's old ex Shasta, played by Catherine Waterston, giving our gumshoe an assignment. Now, I'm sure neither of us want to get bogged down too much in comparing Vice to other movies, but one of my curiosities was seeing what happens when Paul Thomas Anderson more or less makes a genre film, something he's never really done before. The Master, There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, and others all contain elements of various genres, but largely defy easy categorization. Josh, how do you think the director does navigating this well-traveled cinematic terrain, and would you welcome future trips by Anderson into such territory? You know, you're right about that. It didn't strike me quite as being a genre exercise while I was watching it, but that's that's certainly what it is on the mm -hmm. surface level, for sure. And I guess I think of Anderson as having previously worked in familiar territory, though. I think of most of his films as being in the mode of one of the great filmmakers. So I think of something like even going back to the very start with Hard Eight being a Scorsese film in miniature. Sure. And speaking of Altman with A Long Goodbye, uh, I look at Magnolia and Boogie Nights both as Altman ensemble films. Uh, you can even see There Will Be Blood. You know, that's like Citizen Kane done by Terrence Malick, something sure. like that. I think the two standout movies in terms of being his own are Punch Drunk Love and then The Master. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine anyone else making those films. But here we have Inherent Vice, which, you know, filmmakers have made variations on since almost the beginning of the movies. And it was a lot of fun to watch him play with those tropes and those conventions. And, and what does a great filmmaker do when they decide to tackle a genre exercise? Well, it's it's not just to, I guess sometimes it can be to just get some work out of there. Maybe that's what Eastwood does. I don't know if I'd put him in the category of a great <laughs> filmmaker. But you sometimes feel like, uh, or even Woody Allen, they, they just want to make another movie. But Anderson is going to really use the convention, the storylines, the tropes, to still dig into some of his primary concerns. And you mentioned a couple of them right at the start here. The one that stood out to me in addition to the disillusionment and the greed and the other things you talked about uh, is this sense of empathy for people who are just deeply 
possibly irrevocably damaged. Mm -hmm. And you could say that about everyone we meet in this film. And what was particularly interesting to me about him returning to that territory, those sorts of characters, is that here he's doing it largely in a comic vein. This is, to me, his funniest film since Boogie Nights, and yet it still has, which that film does, a very keen eye of empathy for all of these characters. Mm -hmm. Doc included, though I think, and maybe we can get into this, how he stands apart from all the people surrounding him. Yeah, no matter how dreamy and absurd and unique truly this movie is, it is, at its core, a hard-boiled detective movie, as we've touched on. And I do think it's interesting that you bring up Punch Drunk Love as maybe being the most Andersonian, if we can say that, along with the master, because I think the closest relative to this movie in his filmography to Inherent Vice is probably Punch Drunk Love, just because of the fact that even though that, too, is dreamy and absurd and kind of all over the place— It's a romantic comedy of sorts, right? That's his version of a romantic comedy anyway. And this movie, I would argue, is certainly his most romantic movie in addition to Hmm. being his funniest movie maybe since Boogie Nights. I was looking back at my notes from The Master, and I had a line in there where I said something about how all I really see Freddy seeking, the Joaquin Phoenix character in that movie, seeking from Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character— is love. That's all he really seems to want from him, more so than guidance or anything else, is his love. And it does occur to me, thinking about this movie, too, watching it and then looking at that line, how much of Anderson's work really is about people, you said damage, that's certainly there, people who seem incapable of loving or incapable of being loved, or both. And really, at its core, love, you could argue, is all this Doc character really believes in. It's the one thing he's maybe holding on to. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And when you say it's a romance, there's definitely a romantic relationship at the core, Doc and Shasta. Yeah. But it's certainly one-sided. Um, and so it's not necessarily has that sort of romantic feel that we get in Punch Drunk Love. We get this pining Doc figure and how that plays into Shasta messing with him or maybe she's not at the end. We can talk about that, although maybe it's a spoiler mm-hmm. how we read some of those final scenes. So there is that core of longing for romance or for a true relationship. And the way it played in for me was in terms of motivation as well. Uh, Doc's motivation, I think, stands out from all the other characters. There's a great exchange between him and Shasta that I think sets up a lot that's going on in this film. After she explains to him what she's gotten herself in or what she's aware of that's going on and she wants his help with, he says to her, are you still trying to figure out if it's right or wrong, Shasta? And her response, worse than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that just echoes this fact that she, along with almost all the other characters we meet, are beyond right or wrong because they're so desperate in the lives that they're living. They're not really thinking about what they're doing. They're reacting in a way to either preserve themselves or get the fleeting sense of happiness that they think they can find. That's their motivation. Doc, going back to your point about this being a romantic film to some degree, his motivation is purely to help her. And I think he also has a pure motivation in a little bit of an odd epilogue we get to this film. The Shasta-Doc relationship is answered to a degree, and there's still about maybe 15, 20 minutes left. But the through line there is that he transfers that pureness of motivation to another goal. And again, I think you can't say that of very many other characters in the film. Mm -hmm. Looking 
over those notes, as I mentioned, and kind of thinking of this film in relation to other Paul Thomas Anderson films, the things that really came up and really crystallized for me with The Master, how Anderson's films are always focused on this concept of and feature protagonists who are self-made men, which really is part of this larger American myth that I think is so crucial to his work and kind of deconstructing it. But you have these guys, and it is usually men here in these films, who are either successful self-made men, but they've lost something. Something has been corrupted along the way. They've lost some part of their humanity. Or you've got these more weak men who are trying to be self-made men on the level of some of the other characters in his films. And we can go right down through John in Heart 8 to Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights and, of course, the son in There Will Be Blood juxtaposed with his father, Daniel Plainview, in that movie. You also have, as we talk about fathers and sons, lots of father and son relationships, especially in Hard Eight, The Master, and There Will Be Blood. But it's also there in Boogie Nights and Magnolia, too. Well, that's not really on display in this movie, nor is it on display in Punch Drunk Love. If you think back on that film, Barry, the Adam Sandler character, isn't really looking for love from a father figure, and neither is Doc. But I do think, Josh, that it's in that self-made man theme or within that theme where Vice really stands out from his other films because it is filled with these greedy and corrupted and corruptible characters. But the main character, Doc, isn't after anything materialistic. What more he, does he need? He has yeah, his office. Exactly. He says to shot at the beginning. I've, pad. I've got my own office. He's got now. an office. I'm a professional. Which is hilarious. It's a doctor's office. <laughs> so funny. And he just hangs out in there, sometimes in the stirrups, sometimes yes. partaking in the gas. But he's not corruptible. And going back to that great opening sequence with Shasta, and I want to talk about the style of that a little bit if we have time. She says to him, you've never let me down. You've always been true with me, she says. And that notion of truth and that notion of integrity, which does come into play in a lot of hard-boiled detective movies, but we kind of see them, how they are, maybe corrupted a little bit in spirit. He really never is. He is damaged. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. He is damaged in some ways, like a Freddie Quell from The Master, but you get the sense that it's not something that really rules his life. He is actually somehow comfortable with the man he is, which we never see in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I'd argue that he is corruptible though and we do see that in what's probably going to be one of the more talked about scenes in this film i don't know if we can get into it here between him and shasta which is probably waterston's showcase moment as well i do want to talk about a a really layered complicated scene the father-son thing so how about this i was thinking watching it is that there are a lot of father-daughter elements going on in this film we have it's a minor character but japonica this former client of docs that he helped recover she ran away from home as a teenager her father hired him to find her he did brought her back both the father and japonica have parts in this film and as a matter of fact there's a father who talks quite extensively about his relationship That's with true. her there's also the owen wilson character who plays this is he a surf Saxophonist, yeah, saxophonist, yeah, yeah. Uh, who turns government snitch. None He's of this really makes, good here. N- he Owen Wilson's good. None of this makes any more sense while you're watching the movie. Anyway, I'm not just doing a bad job of explaining it, but he has a young daughter, a very young daughter, who he left. Jenna Malone is the mother because he and the mother were drug addicts, and he just said, "I've got to get That's out true. of here." Uh, so it made me wonder. I. I wish there's no mention of Shasta's father, is there? No. no reference. She says at one point something about going north to be with family. Though it's interesting that, of course, the whole plot hinges around her relationship with a father type figure, a much older man. Yes. In Michael Wolfman. And, she, and yeah. when she describes that relationship, that's that's how it, a bit of an element. Yeah, so it is. So that, that's maybe something a little new here. That that was interesting to me. Yeah, it was for me as well. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson, Inherent Vice. It opens in New York and L.A. 
this weekend, but you do have a little bit of a wait for local Chicago listeners not going to come out here, I believe, until January 9th. Mention Freddie Quell and kind of these damaged characters, and maybe we can talk specifically about Joaquin Phoenix and some of the performances in this movie here, but that idea that he's just not that kind of damaged character that a Freddie is, and I almost now only think of Joaquin Phoenix as that type of damaged character, even mm. after seeing her just something so indelible and so just seared on my brain about the master and that performance. It's yeah. hard for me to not think of Joaquin Phoenix as that type of character. And I was really struck watching this film pretty early on the contrast between here and the master, because in the master, think about how many scenes you have where he's interacting with someone and all you see from the other person is a look of complete confusion and just, they can't believe yeah what Freddie is saying to them right, or right. how he's behaving. They're just completely mystified by it, like he's insane. In Inherent Vice, it's always Doc reacting to the insanity of it's what flipped. other people are saying to him. Yeah, it's totally flipped. <laughs> it's always what they're doing around him. His face is just constant befuddlement. And yes, part of that is he's high, and he's sometimes trying to figure out whether or not what's happening is really happening. And I think we as viewers are thinking that the sure. whole time throughout this movie. So the drugs are a part of it. But I think what you really are seeing here is this notion of this non-hippie world, if you want to call it that, is becoming more crazy as we transition out of the so-called summer of love. And it's now 1970. Lots of talk of the Manson family yeah. in this movie, which I love as well. But that craziness of the hippie world, now the real world is far more insane than anything that was happening sure. in those denizens. And I think that's what you really see in that look on his face. Like, are you serious with what you're telling me right now? It's constant. Yeah. And his facial expressions are among the funniest moments in the movie. It's one of those performances which I really enjoyed. I think it's very strong, but put it in contrast and it almost helps to show you how good he is in the master. Does yeah. that make any sense? Sure. Because it's something a little bit lighter and different here, but still crucial to what the movie is doing. I think he's just hilarious. He's a, he's a Shakespearean fool in a lot of ways yeah. because he knows he's smarter just than he comes a off. little bit more than what everyone else knows, though Nobody knows exactly what's going on sure. in this movie. So it's not like he has all the answers. Yeah, but you want to write him off and you can't. No, no. And we should, we've got to get to the performances because we haven't even mentioned Josh Brolin yet. And he is hysterical as this straight laced detective on the police force who's, you know, supposed to represent the, the squares, right? Even in his costuming. And they make jokes about uh, him being a civil rights abusing cop. Right. With a smirk that could only say civil rights violation. And him against <laughs> Phoenix, their interplay. You, you, I almost yeah. wish there was like a buddy cop show with these two, you know, that this mm -hmm. could be a series because they are so funny together. I, I think there are a lot of bit parts that are really stand out for me. And I want to mention a few of them. Hong Chow plays Jade. Jade. Who's so good. Every line is In this is massage gold. parlor that, he, that Doc comes to early on for a clue. And she's just, she's squeaky and motor mouthed. And all she wants to talk about are these lewd specials that he can get at the massage parlor. And he's just looking for clues and trying to get information. And then she becomes an ally of sorts and pops up. Every time she comes back on the screen, you're happy because you know, as you said, she's going to say something really funny. And there's also a framing device, a voiceover narration. Love it. That for me was so crucial. I, I think both of us are sometimes suspicious of voiceover narration being used as a crutch here because the plot is so crazy and there's no point in even trying to follow it because the plot isn't the point. Right. This voiceover narration is a through line, though 
a lot of it has to do with astrology and doesn't make any more sense. There's astrological references she's making, but there is an emotional core to it. And the actress here is Joanna Newsom. She's a mutual friend of Doc and Shasta's, and she's just floating in and out of the movie. Sometimes, unless I missed it, she's riding in the car with Doc, talking to him, and then the next she's cut gone. away, mm-hmm. we'll cut back. He's one of my still favorite, going to the same... One of my favorite cuts yeah, in the movie. going to the same place, and she's gone. But we hear her thoughts, and boy, I, that's the most striking performance in the film, to me. I guess that's the one that lingers the most for me. Yeah, I'm with you on that, I think, even as much as I love Joaquin Phoenix's performance, and I love... Catherine Waterston as well. There's a real enigmatic, layered quality to her that that suggests that much deeper things going on. That See, I, think I that found you need. Waterston a little flat, hmm. and I'm trying to figure out. I found her a little annoying, and so that's something that I know I have to set aside. Just because you have a personal annoyance with how someone's, you know, pulling their facial features or just just something in the personality itself. Hmm. Uh, but the performance for the femme fatale. Now, I don't need her to be, you know, the stereotypical va-va-boom femme fatale, but she's sort of a flat presence here. Hmm. And it, it's... No, I didn't feel that. I really felt why he would be drawn That's to her. That's what I was missing. That's Maybe what I was some missing. Of those why is this guy so obsessed with her compared to the other people we meet? Hmm. I don't know. She does seem different to me, and I'd have to really think about why. I'd have to try to articulate that better, but she seems different than every other character in the film. Okay. She somehow seems to be deeper feeling than other characters in the film, except maybe the voiceover person, Joanna Newsom. But I want to talk about that because okay. that adds to this overall sort of dreamlike state in the yes. haze of watching this movie. I was thinking about, as you know, we've said now many times, the plot is confounding. It is in the sense that by the end of it, you can't really sum it up or say this is what happened and why. And it occurs to me that he's actually more like a journalist, I think. He's more like a reporter in some ways than a detective because he just keeps following the story. Boy, but he takes terrible notes. He does take terrible notes, which is also very funny. <laughs> Something but, Spanish. But yeah, every <laughs> scene, though, one. he finds some new lead, gets some new bit of information. And in the next scene, he's following up on that lead. But yeah. then something new comes up and he has to follow that lead. And it keeps going. At the end, there are tons of dead ends and there are things that just never resolve. But you do understand how and why he gets from scene to scene. Now, how it all fits together, that's a bigger puzzle. The movie never really wisely tries to answer. And I think, yes, you could say, well, that's not what he's concerned with. But I think it fits in with maybe some kind of larger theme that Paul Thomas Anderson is wrestling with a little bit, which is this country, at least this environment, this community that he's focusing on in this film is so disillusioned and so lost that it really doesn't matter how things really are wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. You're never truly going to make sense. Exactly. Not in a satisfactory way anyway. And that voiceover, you said that she's a friend of Shasta and Doc's, but I don't know that we really truly know that. One of the things I love is that the movie opens with the shot of her mm-hmm. in kind of medium close up talking like a narrator, but it seems like she'd be talking to someone. She's not talking to us like she's, she's talking to an to the audience. Side of the frame. She's looking to the side as if someone else could be there. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to figure out who that character is. And then as scenes go on, he goes out to eat one night after that opening scene with the femme fatale with Catherine Waterston. And she's sitting right next to him. But if you pay really close attention to it, nobody else in the scene acknowledges it's her paying presence. paying attention to her. Right. Yeah. So as it goes on, and then you get that sense that, oh, she really is some kind of apparition. Yeah. She's a figment of his imagination. She disappears during that car scene, and she flits in and out throughout the film. And there are points where she's talking directly to Doc, almost as if she's his inner monologue. 
And then there are other times where she talks to us, the audience, like she's a conventional narrator. And that just kind of adds to the trippiness. The Ouija board scene, too. You think she's there with Doc and Shasta. But looking back on it, they don't necessarily interact directly with her either, even though she's commenting on what they're doing. So, yeah, I think you're definitely onto something there. As far as the connections go, trying to put all this together, the overall point there for me is that there is a conspiracy above and beyond what these little desperate people are doing. Mm -hmm. And if you notice, every time Doc has a new conversation, it's connecting some powers that be, whether it's the feds um, with another power, the the heroin ring, something like that. And there's just this overarching sense that these characters are doomed, even Mm -hmm. if they wanted to make choices. Which is fitting with noir, the fatalism of it. Exactly, exactly. They can't make any change. And there's, again, going back to the voiceover, a great line about the ancient forces of greed and fear. Yeah. And she's referencing how those forces are distorting all these trends, you know, the surf rock or the hippie lifestyle, mm-hmm. the hippie culture, and just contorting them to its own ends of greed and fear and just keeping that churning and going on. And so I definitely think that's an overarching theme here that Anderson is interested in. And again, Doc stands apart on this note in that he he doesn't have those same motivations that the other people do to keep this churning right. going on. He's after something separate. Exactly. And I think that one of the ingenious ways that Anderson injects a little bit of social commentary, political commentary into the film without it feeling too heavy handed is he puts them in the mouth of Joanna Newsom. So not only the way she delivers it somehow just kind of soothes you and you just are drawn to what she's saying, but also the fact that she is this unreliable is not really the right word. But since you don't even know if she really exists or what function she serves, you don't necessarily ascribe the same meaning to it. So when she says right. something in the car to him, like, oh, it's the sad history of L.A. land use, and she talks about Mexican families right, getting right. kicked out of Chavez Ravine for Dodger Stadium, and now one of the characters in the movie, his neighborhood, his African-American neighborhood, just being bulldozed for a new community, that's something that seems kind of on the nose, but because it's his inner monologue, I think, yeah. In her mouth, that sort of makes sense that it's coming. It's what he's thinking as he's driving along. And for me, what helped, because I myself have complained about on the nose voiceover narration. Yes, you have. For me, it's because it's slipped in with a lot of nonsense. A lot of the other, you know, a second earlier and a second later, she'll be drifting off on something that sounds nonsensical. And so you're right. It's it's not unreliable, but it's sort of in this melange of odd talk. Exactly. It's not speechified at us. That's it. And- I don't want to try to throw out any crazy theories about this movie, especially because I am not even remotely convinced it holds water. But I was re-watching some parts of it, Josh, and it is interesting that one of the first lines of the movie, in fact, I think it is the first line of the movie, is when Shasta shows up at his place, he says something like, Shasta, is that you? And she says, thinks he's hallucinating. Hasn't mm-hmm. woken up yet. Mm-hmm. And if you do think about, without spoiling it, the beginning and the bookend oh, there's of a book this end. movie, yep. there maybe is a little bit of a sense. Who knows how much of this is really happening or in his imagination? And in that opening scene this is where I wanted to talk about the style a little bit and the way that it does play with our expectations and unground us a little bit is in that opening sequence. I watched this again just before coming here and it validated what I was thinking about it, which is up until... The conversation ends, and it's a good five-minute conversation at least between Shasta and Doc. Until that conversation ends, you never see them in the same shot together. That's true. When he walks her out to the street, you see them in the same shot. He's taking her to her car. But up until that point, there is this constant sense that she could be a ghost. Mm -hmm. She could be someone he in his stone state 
is having a conversation with but isn't really there because throughout it, it's always kind of shot reverse shot, never showing them accompanying the same space. What's the line in the bookend, the latter half? Something about, am I in a time machine, he says. That's right. Because he's laying on the couch exactly how he was before, dressed like he was before. The lighting yeah. of th- This is a little touch that I loved about this. Um, and, you know, a lot has been said about the 35 millimeter, Anderson's decision to shoot it that way. Whether this accounts for the interesting factor of the lighting, I don't know. But there's so often daytime and we have all the lights on in the house. We right. get this sense of Doc especially. How? Uh, what does Brolin say at one point? The nap that's so necessary to the hippie lifestyle. <laughs> to the hippie lifestyle. <laughs> he's, he's often napping or just laying on his couch. And we see through the window that it's a bright, beautiful California day. Yeah. And he's got this dingy lamp on. Uh, but, but I thought of that because the lamp, I believe, is exactly lit the same as it is from the beginning mm. to the end. And uh, yeah, I mean, visually, obviously it's beautiful. I mean, it's an Anderson it film and there are just- Robert some, Ellswood again. It, yep. And there are some uh, individual shots that uh, I'm thinking of the one when he goes to the massage parlor, which is in this little trailer in the middle of a housing development that hasn't even been started yet. And there are all those banners, the flags, uh-huh. and it's just Phoenix walking by from below with him framed in the sky, all those flags fluttering above him. I mean, there's just some some gorgeous imagery in this movie as well. There really is. And you're right. The 35 millimeter, there's a little bit of graininess to it, but the colors are really vivid. And you're yeah. right that even when, you know, you expect it in this sun-kissed beach type environment, but even when he's inside his apartment and it is dark and it's a little bit dingy, his shirt is still a really vivid yeah, kind of rich. blue. There's something to it. You're right. There's a richness to all the colors in this film that do just heighten everything. And there is a sense of watching this movie that everything is heightened the long takes too which we've come to expect a little bit with Mm -hmm. pt anderson here they're not as ostentatious as we often see from him early on there's a scene where he's talking to a man in his office and there's a couple cuts in it but there really is about a four minute take where it just keeps kind of slowly tracking in and doesn't really do anything else and another really good one is in that sequence the one you touched on earlier with shasta the corruption one if you will where she comes to him and and seduces him and it's disturbing in a few ways but the camera just lingers and lingers and lingers and it never cuts over the course of of five to six minutes and i think that just adds to kind of the tension of that scene a little bit yeah but i will say josh even as he is maybe corrupted or he's driven to act in a way that he might not normally do what does it take to make him do that it's only her It's only the thing that he hangs on to in almost a pure sense that drives him to that. She's going to be the one, as he says early on, you're the one who could get to Mickey, the guy that starts off all the action. She's the only one who could get to him. And getting back to the tracking shots... That early scene you mentioned of him walking her to the car, mm-hmm. that is a long take. That. And that says everything. It's not ostentatious. You're right. But it also says everything you're touching on about this being romantic longing for him mm. because the camera, it's it has holds them together. She gets in the car and then it follows as he holds on to the car while she's driving away. He, he offers to drive her, I believe, first yeah. of all. So he clearly wants her to stay or stay with her. And the camera swings around to watch him, watch her leave. I think that's, is that where we get that great title appearance mm-hmm. to the beat oh, of the music? Oh, with the music, yeah, it's Fantastic. Wonderful. And then it swings back around him, all still the same take, and just kind of pulls further away as, as he feels that sense of loss, too. We've certainly talked about this movie enough, but a couple other quick things I wanted to get in, because you talked about performances. We've highlighted some of the best ones. Have we forgotten somebody? There's so many well, people in yeah, here. Yeah, we've forgotten, I'm sorry, for me, the most memorable performance, the one I'm still laughing about days later, 
is Martin Short. Yeah. Martin Short shows up just for a couple scenes in this movie, <laughs> and he really is so wonderful. He's going to come up later in this show, so okay. I'm going to save any more about him. But Martin Short is amazing in every second that he's on screen in this movie. I almost hesitate to bring this one up because this has been, rightfully so, a love fest, and this is nitpicking because she's not even on screen very much. But the only weak link in this movie is Reese Witherspoon. You think she stands out oh, that much? She plays like an assistant district attorney, and yeah. she's in a romantic relationship with Doc. She's the one character, Josh. She's the one actress, I should say, in this movie, the one performer who acts to me in a very, very mannered way that doesn't feel nearly as grounded and as okay. earthy as any of the other performances I think, here. I think you're right, but let me offer a defense anyway. She's also playing one of the squares who's comfortable being a square. Brolin is not, but her character is comfortable in what she is as yeah. a district attorney. And so there's going to be a bit of opposition there. That scene on the bench. I, I thought it's that too. I'm like, scene. is this Reese Witherspoon's problem or is it my problem? But I'll also say in her defense, she's very good in the scene where she comes back to Doc's place. That's and the one scene out. she's great. Okay. In. But why? She's not, she doesn't have the DA not, act on anymore. Yeah. But I would say that there's still maybe a way as an actress to pull off that kind yeah. of discomfort you could be right. without you could be right. seeming like she's playing it. Yeah. Playing it's really the key. She's the only one who's playing it anything in this movie for me. And that goes goes back to Joaquin Phoenix as well. Think about how easy it could have been to play this character in almost a gonzo kind of Hunter S. Thompson, Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp eccentric yeah, exactly. way. Right, right. And it never feels like that for no. even a moment. It just really is so much more than that. And speaking of so much more than that, I think this is something I tried to get at a little bit during our 500th episode of The Music Box. A lot of Paul Thomas Anderson love on that show. Again, though, this is a really, in some ways, a small movie. Yes, it's a big ensemble, but it's confined to a lot of the same environments. It's L.A. here. And it really is, at its core, about a single relationship or a couple offshoot relationships from that. And somehow, Anderson just manages through these small stories to tell these sweeping tales. This feels like a movie about the American experience, even though I don't know that you would say that about a lot of detective movies. That really comes through in this movie, in those performances, in the style, in the subject matter, just the way Anderson explores it. They feel so much more sweeping than that somehow. And I do think that goes back a little bit to this notion of coming out of this Manson era, right? The fact that people keep bringing it up. What signaled more than anything the end of an era, at least what was perceived as this end of an era in the late 60s, you've got L.A. now experiencing a sort of trauma. They're disillusioned mm -hmm. by this crime. They're also disillusioned by Vietnam happening and spreading during this time. We get hints in the movie of Nixon and Watergate to come. And so it's a very specific movie, but in some ways still feels timeless. Because if you think about it, and maybe this is one of those paths I'm going down the rabbit hole here, Josh, I apologize. But we're always coming out of some era into another. We're always transitioning out of some kind of national trauma. Right. I mean, every decade has it. I think this movie does hint at that. And well, maybe the film you listed a handful at the top that this belongs to. Maybe another one is Easy Rider along yeah. those lines with the disillusionment. So that's that's certainly there as well. That is Inherent Vice, the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. Again, Chicago listeners, you will have to wait just a little bit longer. It comes out in January, opens in New York and L.A. This weekend, if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Coming up next, we have a four-person scene planned for Massacre Theater, meaning one of us is going to have to do triple duty. Then we'll get into quite possibly our most random top five ever, highlighting some of our favorite music, characters, moments, whatever from the year in film. Stay with us. Let the breeze blow sideways. 
vacation Salazar in the wake of a faded nation nobody knows It's a miracle to me almost, uh, although the film is far from perfect, it's a miracle that it all kind of makes sense together. And you're in this created, invented universe that is its own hermetic thing. But this film to me really feels alive because of the performers. The golden tones of Michael Phillips, Chicago Tribune film critic, and of course, regular film spotting contributor. Welcome back to Film Spotting. That was Michael back in March of this year talking about, let's see if listeners can guess the movie. We'll play a little game here, Josh. Created invented universe hermetic who else could it be but wes anderson and the movie grand budapest hotel we mean that in a good way we do we're using of those words next week our usual year-end guests michael and scott tobias from the dissolve will join us for part one of our top 10 films of 2014 countdown it's a show so big so robust we have to split it into two parts grand budapest hotel likely to show up somewhere Alas, I may end up feeling like poor Rudolph. I think I'm going to be left out of those games. Well, you should try to watch it again. I know you have nothing else to watch. I know. Nothing else to watch. Only a spreadsheet of about 32 movies that I have six days to get to. But I I really did vow earlier that Grand Budapest Hotel was going to be really an exception for me because I never get to rewatch movies ever. I never do it before top 10 list. I just go off of my recollection. I did see The Master more than once now that I think about it, but that was really to try to kind of wrap my head around it i do need to see grand budapest hotel and maybe i'll live up to my promise well maybe i won't if you don't then i won't feel bad about not revisiting interstellar in time to reconsider my (laughs) come on it's three hours i wouldn't expect you to do that exactly over at filmspotting.net that's our website you can help us pick this year's golden brick award winner we've got six finalists to choose from these are the candidates for overlooked movie of the year that are also from an upcoming or emerging director. They're also formally ambitious, and we did talk about them on the show. We gave you these finalists last week in the poll, Blue Ruin, Calvary, Dear White People, Mistaken for Strangers, The One I Love, and Starred Up. With the exception of Dear White People, which is still in theaters, and I still need to see a Golden Brick finalist that only you have seen, Josh, unfortunately. The rest of the films are available on DVD or digital rental, so really you can weigh in on this process. Make your voice heard. We're going to announce this year's winner on next week's show. Again, you can vote now and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. Speaking of comments, I went through our comments, Josh, and speaking of Interstellar, The mailbag. Mm -hmm. We didn't get as much email in response to Interstellar as maybe I had hoped, especially because I really thought we'd get some good Team Adam, Team Josh back and forth. As it turns out, there was a common theme in the mailbag responses to Interstellar, and that theme was, I hear what Josh is saying, but he's completely wrong. Everyone? Everyone says that. So I'm not going to feign too much disappointment because they were on Team Adam. And I know they're out there. I'm sure you, you don't have, have that filter support. set on your email, the one that filters out all <laughs> agreement with me. 
That's a nice invention. Can I get Gmail on that? <laughs> because I'd be interested in that. But no, it is, unfortunately, you've got one. You've got one, and I've got about I'll eight that I it. chose. I'll take the one. <laughs> You'll take the one. I hope it's well argued. <laughs> hey, I know they're out there, Josh. You have lots of support in your negativity towards Interstellar, but apparently those people don't use email. Yeah, they've well, evolved. What are you going to do? They've moved on to something better. I'm sure that's it. They're just using other forms of social media. I don't know, but we'll get to some of that feedback in our bonus content, which you can access if you have the Film Spotting app for iPhone, Windows 8 phone, or Android. All the information you need about that is also at filmspotting.net. Just click on apps. We now move on to some bad acting and massacre theater. We perform a scene, you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time we massacred this scene. How can I help you today? Um, I was just wondering what your church's stance on lying and adultery was. It's not a good thing. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. But then, now tell me this. Assuming there is a hell... Oh, the, the Christian church recognizes the existence of hell. Okay, so we'll just say there's a hell. There is. Just so we're clear. Okay, so for argument's sake... No, there's no argument. It's there. Right below our feet. Right above the Orient. It's there. That was Fred Armisen as the pastor and Emma Stone as Olive in Easy A, directed by Will Gluck, written by Burt V. Royal. We did massacre that on our Golden Brick preview special a couple weeks back over Thanksgiving. Easy A, believe it or not, a former Golden Brick nominee in 2010. Emma Stone, not quite the household name she is today. But think about that. That's only four years. Right. That's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And having been in two bad Spider-Man films hasn't even derailed <laughs> yes, her somehow, career somehow. It has not. McGill Foote in Ottawa, Ontario, longtime listener, says, talk about an easy massacre theater. I'm with Josh. Adam did everything but name the movie. I did give some hints. <laughs> you were coming pretty close. I didn't think people were going to get it. The movie Easy A, the breakout actress also featured in Birdman, Emma Stone. But I have to say, I've honestly always thought of Superbad as Stone's breakout role, as it's the first time I really took note of her as an actress. Mm, Yeah, that was before, wasn't it? So, yes, it was. And a lot of people writing in along those lines with McGill. We saw the tweets as well. People saying, wait a second, wasn't Superbad her breakout? That was one of my hints that a certain Birdman actress Mm -hmm. had a breakout role in this movie. I guess that's just how I see it, because I've somehow completely spaced off her performance in Superbad. Not that it probably wasn't very good. I'm sure it was. She's really always well, it's good. it's minor. It's minor. But I it is minor. And scenes where Easy A, she is the movie. Yeah. Didn't that come out in 2007? I did somehow completely overlook that she was in Not Superbad. Sure. So for me, Easy A is the breakout. We also heard from Brianna Pierre from St. Pete, Florida. Even though the actress was basically given away in the setup, Easy A is a staple in my movie memory. A film in the vein of Mean Girls, Clueless, Heathers, and The Craft that was seminal to my adolescent girl childhood. Amanda Bynes and Emma Stone are comedic gold in this indie film full of teen stars. It also included the best parents in the world, Patricia Clarkson and Stanley Tucci. The movie was directed by newbie Will Gluck, who I quite fancy as a comedic director. His first film, Fired Up, is underrated in my opinion and aligns itself as a bring it on for boys. Great stuff, Brianna. Thank you to everyone who entered Massacre Theater, Josh. The film spotting hat wouldn't say overflowing. Apparently, my hints we needed didn't a few give more it away clues. that much. Yes, I'll come up with more clues next time, but certainly full. So with that, reach in to the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Caroline Thomas from Dallas, Texas. Congratulations, Caroline. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and yes, we are snickering a little bit here. We're getting really clever, Josh. We've come up with a scene, 
probably recognizable to most people listening, but we've mixed up some names, mixed up the setting a little bit, tried to give it a little 2014 flavor in keeping with this show. Do you think I need to give 17 hints for this no, one like I did last time? No hints. No hints. I, I guess I'll say, I don't know if this will be a hint, but I should be able to pull this off because I'm 40. I bet I've watched this 36 times. Seriously? In my life. Possibly. Wow. Staple. We're talking a staple here. Mm, I so. probably haven't seen it in 30 years. Oh, wow. That's too bad. So I'm, I'm basically Ebenezer you. Scrooge. I was going to say. And now <laughs> I'm giving hints. Okay, let's just get going here. Well, we do need to point out, even though it hopefully will become obvious, <laughs> that, Josh, you are the star of Massacre Theater, and we're going to see it hopefully come through here as you are playing three different characters. It shouldn't be obvious. Okay. I should just disappear well, into all true. three roles. How, how dare I? <laughs> Okay, I started off. You're going to give me the action. Uh, okay. Action. Halt! Who goes there? Us, of course. Who'd you think? Oh, well, then that's okay. Okay. Who, may I ask, are you? We're Emmett and Lucy and Bruce. Who are you? I'm the official sentry of Cloud Cuckoo Land. A jack-in-the-box for a sentry? My name is... Don't tell me. Jack. No. Charlie. <laughs> and see, I'm, I'm glad you brought out your womanly voice again. That was my womanly voice? No. Yes. I didn't even go falsetto. It, it was your older womanly my older, voice. My I'm, so, I'm sorry. You do have a variety of womanly voices. Actually, I know exactly what actor I was basically imitating there, and I wonder if that really is the actor in the scene. Wow. So Don't say the name. In case I'm not going to say the name. We'll find out what happens. If you know what scene we did just massacre, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, December 22nd. By the way, I want triple pay for this. <laughs> okay, fair rendition. enough. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Whoa, are we inside my brain right now? It's big. I must be smart. Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing a lot of activity here. I don't think he's ever had an original thought in his life. <laughs> That's not true. For instance, one time I wanted to have a bunch of my friends over to watch TV, not unlike this TV that just showed up magically, and not everybody can fit on my one couch, and I thought to myself, well, what if there was such a thing as a bunk bed, but as a couch? Introducing the double-decker couch, so everyone could watch TV together and be buddies. That is literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Please, Wildstein, let me handle this. That idea is just the worst. Morgan Freeman, Chris Pratt, and Elizabeth Banks there in The Lego Movie, one of the standout films of 2014. I think many, many would agree, Josh. And that transitions us nicely into this week's top five, what we're calling our 2014 best of the rest. And as we touched on earlier in the show, we typically do this or have been doing this recently in January. We call it our rap party. Right. We look back on the year in film. Two years we did that? Yeah, Three, two years in a row. Two, okay. I think it's at least two. Who knows? It's all a blur, Josh. But we do look back on the year in film after we've already shared our top 10 movies of the year. This time, we're previewing our top 10 movies of the year, which we'll get to next week. And we're going to get into some of these other categories, though we're not really covering many or any, maybe, of the same categories we did at the rap party? I think two of my five okay. are possibly the same, yeah. Well, our producer, Sam Van Hogren, encouraged us to be creative, and I fought it 
yes. as hard as I could because I just wanted to resist this and try to simplify things. When was it you were trying to back out of this? Saturday, Sunday? Basically, it was late yeah, in the game. about a day before recording. It was late in the game. But you know what? I work well under pressure, Josh. Okay. And what ended up happening, I have to say, is we picked these categories. And I do think we approach this a little bit differently here as we get into these because we haven't really talked about it too much. We wanted to make them a little more personal and not necessarily have the same categories. Mm-hmm. I ended up really liking how this came out. So we'll see if that well, translates good. to radio, but I'm I'm happy. So the reference in the Lego movie clip to a bad idea, that wasn't you trying to say, no. trying to still resist this list. You've maybe, come around. Maybe a few days ago, but I've come okay, around good. now to it being a good idea. So Josh, kick us off. My first category is best entrance. And this is something that, you know, a lot of superhero movies or action movies will have. They'll give an iconic character a great entrance. Often it's a villain, and usually it's a big moment for a movie. I did, though, consider a different sort of movie for this category, Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. Mm -hmm. We talked about in our review what a great entrance that is. But I ended up going with something more along the lines of a superhero entrance, and this is the appearance of the mysterious dragon rider in How to Train Your Dragon 2. There's a new character to that series. I didn't like this, the sequel, quite as much as the first one. I really? thought the narrative was a little bit weaker, but the animation, wow, that animation was just amazing. And it includes this scene, which introduces this new character. The writer wears an elaborate mask and a costume that mimics the look of dragons a little bit. There are spikes and scales. That's just fantastic. You also get the sense that they're drawing from tribal outfits Mm -hmm. a little bit, maybe something you'd see in Africa or maybe Australia. So it's this great look, and she makes her first full appearance. We get a glimpse of her in the clouds early on, but the first full appearance is in this cave where she's surrounded by these other dragons that she cares for. She's standing before Hiccup the hero, and she has this staff that has a shaker at the end, and just by gently shaking it a little bit, it's a command to the dragons to light these simmering fires in their mouths. And all of a sudden, the whole cave illuminates and we can see her in full. Hmm. Uh, I earlier described How to Train Your Dragon 2 as if the mythology of Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, had been filtered through the imagery of Miyazaki. And you certainly get that feel here in this great entrance. That is a fantastic entrance. And I do like that movie. And I'd say for me, I put it right up on par with the original How to Train Your Dragon. As we are sitting here taping this, we're a couple days away from having our ballots due for the Chicago Film Critics Association and Best Animated Feature. And it's not my number one or two choice, but it's in the mix for the top five. And I do think we have the ability to choose our top five. And I'm really kind of wrestling with a couple other films to see how high it gets there. Because as I think back on it, it is one of those movies I really did enjoy from this year. Okay, so the joke with me, of course, Josh, and you've already made the joke once in the show, is that I tend to be a little bit verbose with these things. And I can't be like you and just maybe throw out one quick one you considered and then get to the meat of it. I have. Are to you have telling me we're going to have five nominees. honorable mentions for every one of these categories? I'm not going to tell you that. You're just going to have to hear how it plays oh, out. Man. I don't have honorable mentions. I've got five choices, <laughs> Josh, for each one. But really, here's what it is. Here's in my defense. Let's see if I can sell you on this. Okay. okay. It's not just a matter of me truly wanting to sit here and talk all night long. I didn't pick any of these categories and try to find a winner. Okay. Okay. I picked the things and the categories formed out of those. So it was because maybe you're just more succinct than me, Josh, but (laughs) it's a longer process for me. And I needed to see. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I really needed to see three or four or five and then ultimately 20 or 30 different things that stood out for me in the year to then to start to be able to weave some connections and see the categories form out of those. So with that, my first category is best action scenes in non-action movies. Okay. 
I'm going to start with one of our golden brick finalists, Blue Ruin. I'll just call it Dwight's Revenge. Mm. There are a lot of scenes that are pretty suspenseful and tense in that movie, but the actual revenge sequence, that one for me really stands out. It's sort of an anti-action scene. The whole movie is anti-action in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, that's well said. Night Moves, the Kelly Reichert film, Blowing Up the Dam. Mm. We talked about that mm-hmm. during our review. It seems to go perfectly, this bit of eco-terrorism. It's Peter Sarsgaard and Elle Fanning and Jesse Eisenberg, and they're pulling away from the bridge that they've set this bomb by and they are heading off and it looks like they got away with it, but then a car appears up on the hill. And so you start to get this tension of could they get caught? Could someone get hurt? And it's really a paradoxical movie moment because there's no good reason why you as a viewer should be rooting for them to succeed, but you kind of can't help it partly because they're the protagonists you've been following and you understand their investment in this, but also you just kind of want the tension to break. You want that car on the hill to go away. So I really do love that sequence from Night Moves. The tale of the Princess Kaguya, Josh, and the running from the palace dream. You talked about it last week on the show. Just now have caught up with this movie over the weekend. That sequence is probably my favorite in the movie, too, actually. It's the most striking one in an already visually striking movie. The anger of the princess, how everything about the textures and the shading of the hand-drawn art changes along with the tempo of everything. There's a real ferocity to it. This release for her in that moment is wonderful. In the movie Joe, the David Gordon Green movie starring Nicolas Cage, I'll just call it Joe Let's the Dogs Out. Yes. There's a real operatic, dark, disturbing kind of sequence where he brings his dog to this brothel where this dog is that always bothers him. And he finally just says, my dog's going to teach you a lesson. And there's a lot of other things going on kind of played with that and intercut with it. And that repression that is finally unleashed there in that scene is something that I talked about quite a bit with David Gordon Green and Ty Sheridan during my interview with them for that movie earlier in the year. A Most Wanted Man. I finally caught up with this, the movie starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think really his last lead role in this movie from Anton Corbine, the spy movie. I won't give any spoilers here, but I will just say this. There is a key scene where basically the whole movie, Josh, all the stakes of the movie are hanging on whether or not one man will say one line of dialogue and sign his name to a piece of paper. And... It's so suspenseful. And that's all that's going on in the scene. But it really is the whole movie in that one sequence. Finally, in Nightcrawler, which you mentioned, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, this sleazy photojournalist, it's the end showdown, which is all I'm going to say about it again for people who haven't seen the movie. Like in Night Moves, I found myself having that really vexed feeling where you shouldn't want any of it to play out the way it does. It's all going to be bad for almost everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Except that it's also this character's masterpiece. In some way, he's orchestrating this whole sick, twisted work of art. And you kind of want to see how it plays out just for that reason alone. So all of those are my favorite action scenes from non-action movies. See, the good thing about you listing that many is it gives me time to think of my own ad. There you go. Love it. Grand Budapest Hotel, The Sled Chase, which I believe also employs stop motion animation. It just comes out of nowhere seemingly in that Mm -hmm. film and, and works beautifully. All right. So then at number four, this category I'm going to call best Cedar Rapids impersonation. <laughs> Following me here? No, but go for it. I don't have a crude. My top 10 list isn't finalized, but I'm pretty sure at this point I don't have a crude broad comedy, which I, you know, have in years past. I've had This is the End, Casa de Mi Padre, my beloved Cedar Rapids. But the one that came closest for me in 2014 and probably deserves more attention because it came and went fairly quietly earlier this year was Bad Words, Jason Bateman's Didn't see it. directorial debut. Yeah, it's it's worth catching up with. It, he stars as well as this bitter, hateful 40-year-old 
who's found a loophole that allows him to compete in children's spelling bee tournaments where he routinely crushes his pint-sized opponents. And Bateman is so intensely committed to the awfulness of this character, to his insensitivity, to his arrogance. It's almost as if we generally think of him as this likable guy, right? This comic actor. He wants to shred every inkling of that image with this one picture. And some of the biggest laughs in the movie simply come from the entitled way he sits among these kid competitors who are half his size and doesn't care how asinine he looks. He just owns that seat. Did you remember your winning word? I'm Titania, remember? I can't do it again, shawarma. Titania. How about just your favorite word? I'm serious, pal. You don't have one? I don't. No, sorry. Mine is subjugate. It just sounds so cool, you know? Subjugate. 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 What's yours? Can it be shut the f*** up? I also really liked how bad words function as a mirror for parents who like to think of our children as little champions of everything they do. And you being a parent as well know that this has sort of infected our, you know, from little leagues to Mm -hmm. whatever you call it, gymboree classes. Every kid is a winner, right? And so this movie turns the parents at this spelling bee into these ultra monsters who will do anything to make sure that their kids will win. And of course, Bateman is there as their ultra nemesis. And I just love that, how that comes about. I'd say the movie's probably a bit insistent on its political incorrectness. You can tell how bad it wants to be bad. It doesn't have this, you know, elegant subversiveness of something like Casa de Mi Padre. So I couldn't quite put it on the top 10. But it's still this withering send-up of our kid-obsessed culture and one of my favorite comedies of 2014. So it won't pain you to hear that it's not among those 32 or so movies I'm trying to catch up with over the next six days? Won't pain me. doesn't surprise me. No. <laughs> Great pick, though. And one, you're right, haven't heard many critics talk about. Although so. I was surprised when I looked on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't check Metacritic, but it actually had, I forget what the percentage was, but a favorable rating. It so. was fresh. It was certified fresh. Love it. What else do you need to know? (laughs) Let's move on to my next category, which I'm calling Didn't Know They Had It In Them. These are surprises of sorts. Okay. Three performances, Josh, where either they showed me something I'd never seen before or maybe just whatever perception I had of them, not really based on any good evidence, was challenged or changed in some way. And I'm going to start with Tyler Perry from Gone Girl, the David Fincher movie. Sure. This one isn't really fair because... I didn't know he had anything in him. I haven't seen any of his Medea movies or the movies he directed. I guess, looking over his IMDb page, the only role I can say before Gone Girl I had seen Tyler Perry in was as an admiral in Star Trek 2009. That's right, yeah. But I think that's a very small role, and he's not on screen very much. But there is a perception you bring to any actor, certainly one you've seen in countless trailers Over the years, he is usually very big, very broadly comic. And here he's playing this lawyer. He's generally a grandma. Let's just say. Well, that's right. He's always in makeup of some sorts, right? Here he's just playing a lawyer who's the go-to high-profile defense attorney, really in the country. You could maybe equate him to a guy like Johnny Cochran, but he isn't played like Johnny Cochran is in our collective memory anyway. On the show today, we have defense attorney Tanner Bolt, patron saint to wife killers everywhere. (laughs) Tanner Bolt, would you actually consider defending Nick Dunn? Well, let me just say, as always, Ellen, thank you for such a warm welcome. Mm -hmm. 
but of course I defend Nick Dunn. Listen, just because this guy isn't walking around weeping, that doesn't mean that he's not Tanner, hurting. The hallmark of a sociopath is a lack of empathy. But the truth is, you'd have to be a sociopath to behave normally in well, this situation no, because no. it's the most well, abnormal well, excuse, situation excuse me, in the Tanner, world. Tanner, but there really is nothing contrived about his performance. He's very subtle and he's just very good at what he does and genuine in every moment he's on screen. My next one, I teased earlier in the show during our review of Inherent Vice. Martin Short as Dr. Blatnoid in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie is this dentist with a coke problem and a young girl problem not too young she's over 18 but he clearly has a lot of different issues he's dealing with and Martin Short we know he's hilarious but he is darkly funny here and he just never Josh the way I can describe it best is just to say that he doesn't mug for the camera in any moment and Martin Short and I'm not saying this derisively he's always mugging for the camera that's his his thing think back to snl think back to a lot of those movies from the 80s but he really plays this character as yet another damaged character in this universe and he is hilarious and he doesn't really do anything that's serious but he plays him straight martin short plays this absurd character as straight as he could he's good with phoenix in that scene they're interplay together and that's something maybe we don't associate with him either is right sort of comic cooperation absolutely and speaking of cooperation my last choice here bradley cooper and dave batista from guardians of the galaxy a movie i know you really didn't like josh and i didn't love guardians of the galaxy but i definitely liked it more than you and if you had told me that the two funniest characters in the movie were voiced by bradley cooper and acted by a former wrestler i would have said you were crazy surely i'd be watching chris pratt and some of the other performers in the movie cooper has just never struck me as someone with that range of talent not that a movie star needs it i just mean he's not a funny voices kind of guy someone who i'd hear and go oh wait that's bradley cooper i would never be surprised by that i just assumed he'd always play himself on screen no he plays Rocket, the raccoon, and I had to learn later that it was Bradley Cooper at the end of the film because I didn't watch any of the trailers or get into the hype. I didn't know it was him. I couldn't tell, and I thought that character was really, really funny. I also hold it against Bradley Cooper that he just doesn't have much of a sense of humor, period, in the roles he plays. He really does here in Guardians. If we're going to get out of here, we're going to need to get into that watchtower, and to do that, I'm going to need a few things. The guards wear security bands to control their ins and outs. I need one. Leave it to me. That dude there. I need his prosthetic leg. His leg? Yeah. God knows I don't need the rest of him. Look at him, he's useless. Batista, obviously, someone I've never seen on screen before, but he was my favorite character in the movie, Josh. Impeccable comic timing, physically and in terms of the dialogue. So much of the humor of that film is derived from his reactions or his non-reactions and some of those physical movements and gestures. And again, just a shock to me that those two were my favorite performances in that movie coming in. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, but I did like Rocket Raccoon, so that's fine by me. We'll finish up our list of the best of the rest in 2014 movies when we come back, along with a few bonus categories as honorable mentions. I'm putting the over-under on Adam's honorable mentions at 20 minutes. How dare you, sir? Stay with us. I got a bone bleed stick with termite holes That I can swing out of skull when I'm feeling quite bold I got a flea mod bike without any brakes With my boot heels getting all the concrete scrapes 
Cruising over the breeze with the sunset gold I've been pedaling for miles, feel a thousand years old Got a roll of cash in the side of my side Sipping cold 45 and the light kicking right I got the low rent, solitary, cool like a fool in the summertime. My death wish mine, I'm a brown dog, I see the wavering line. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Greetings, listeners of Film Spotting Original Recipe. This is Matt Singer from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. On our latest episode, Allison Wilmore and I will review both volumes of Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. So get ready to hold on to your hats and discard all your other articles of clothing. As we rapidly approach the end of the year and top 10 list-making season, we'll also be recommending some of the cinematic highlights of 2014 that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe to the show in iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. Or find us on the web at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Josh Brolin from The Goonies 2. You're listening to Film Spotting? That's a question. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It is our 2014 preview of sorts for our top 10 films of the year next week. We're calling it the best of the rest. We've made up a few arbitrary categories here and are sharing some of our favorite performances and other moments from the year in cinema. Josh, let's quickly recap our first two categories and picks. Yeah, at five, I had Best Entrance, which went to The Mysterious Dragon Rider and How to Train Your Dragon 2. Number four, my Best Cedar Rapids impersonation went to Jason Bateman's Bad Words. My first category was Best Action Scenes and Non-Action Movies. I'll just list a few of them. The Blowing Up the Dam sequence in Night Moves, Running from the Palace in The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, and the climax of A Most Wanted Man, that spy thriller, though decidedly not an action thriller starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. My other category was didn't know they had it in them. Some performances where actors surprised me, gave me something I hadn't seen from them or wouldn't expect from them. Tyler Perry in Gone Girl, Martin Short in Inherent Vice, and Bradley Cooper and Dave Bautista in Guardians of the Galaxy. For our radio listeners, if you want to hear our takes on those picks, you can find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net or via iTunes. We're in the home stretch then, Josh. Three more categories to get us through the best of the rest. What do you got? Well, I think maybe your strategy was employed by me here for my number three category where there were a lot of instances from 2014 movies that used music brilliantly. Hmm. And I thought, I want to pick one that represents that, the best use of music. Maybe Whiplash is the first film that comes to mind. It's all about music and drumming, jazz drumming. It certainly did offer a few options for this list. And I think if I had made the category movie about music, best movie about music, that might have been it. But for a musical moment... I'm going to go with the final band performance in Frank. This is the Michael Fassbender film. He plays this mysterious and creative genius of the title. He's the leader of an experimental rock band, also happens to wear a paper mache head at all times. In our review, Adam, we spent a lot of time talking about the questions a movie like Frank raises in terms of art and the creative process. What defines genuine creativity? How is it fostered? 
How much are we influenced by the packaging that art comes in? What I love about this performance scene, and it features Frank reuniting with his bandmates after a breakup for an impromptu dirge in a seedy Austin bar. I love the way it plays with all of those questions while also delivering this really great song, the moaning testimonial, I love you all. Prodigal son wants to return to where the dogs play pool. I love you all. I love you all. I love you all. I love you all. So best use of music the final performance in Frank. I've got two more performance-based categories to kick us off here, and the first one is my only negative category, Josh. I'm calling it the cringeworthiest. These are... I didn't know we were allowed to go negative. Why not? Why not? <sighs> we're such a positive show. That's, That's true. Why. It's true, but hey, these elements just stood out to me as I was going through <laughs> all, right, this should be good. all the films I've seen. So scenes, performances, moments that made me cringe, and that doesn't necessarily mean all of them are bad. It just means they did make me incredibly uncomfortable and I thought were a little bit awkward. A perfect place to start is with Uma Thurman's performance in Nymphomaniac Volume 1. Really? The Lars von Trier movie where she plays a character named Mrs. H. She's only on screen really for this sequence. Her husband has left her, decided to leave her because he's having an affair with the character played by Stacey Martin, who is this young nymphomaniac. She's sleeping with seven or eight men a day. And this wife decides she's just not going to let this go lightly. She shows up at the girl's door with her three kids in tow. And at one point, hilariously says, would it be all right if I show the children the whoring bed? Mm -hmm. You didn't like that? (laughs) One of the best lines in the year in cinema, (laughs) without a doubt. And again, I'm not really ready, Josh. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm just sitting on the fence. I'm not ready to say that the scene is a failure or that Uma Thurman's performance is a failure. I'd really have to go back and kind of dissect it a little bit more. But to say it's histrionic is putting it lightly. Uma Thurman goes for the anguish of a woman who has been the victim of adultery in that scene. And that whole sequence in a movie filled with moments that are supposed to be scandalous and outrageous. I don't know what it says about me that this woman yelling with her kids in the room was really the most disturbing that's what thing. bothered you. Yeah, that's what really bothered me more than anything <laughs> in Nymphomaniac. I'd also look to Joaquin Phoenix in The Immigrant. I'm with you. Yeah. And, and Josh, I thought I'm speaking... of that watching Inherent Vice, too. Did you? It just showed me how something was off with that immigrant performance. For it me. really is. I think it's off from the very beginning, but I am thinking about the end of the film, which, again, I'll be vague about. And I think we're going to get to your shot of the year in a moment. Yeah. I hope I'm not spoiling it. We're not high on The Immigrant, either of us, but the end shot of The Immigrant is certainly in the conversation for shot of the year. I think anybody should consider it. But See, I found even that. Oh, see, mattered. I love that. But Phoenix prostrating himself before Marion Cotillard earlier in that scene, I felt uncomfortable every moment of that, just wanting it to stop. I thought you were going to give me a great segue, Josh, as you were talking about your favorite music moments into my cringeworthy moments. I could have led with Robert Pattinson. In the rover. Oh, such a good scene. Pretty Just girl rock. this. Too. I know you did. I saw your oh. comments on Letterboxd. I know you're all in. I'm in on this movie. You're in on the performance, and it is just this area that we split on where our senses of what big and small performances are. Because sometimes I hear you describe a performance that you think is big, and then you watch this Robert Pattinson performance, Josh, and don't think it's too big when. 
it takes him 30 minutes to say three words. Yeah. Every line he has to just labor through in this movie, playing this mentally challenged or this slow character in this movie. And I just found it so hard to watch. And the one sequence in particular where I was most cringing he's was the one where he's singing along pop song to on the radio. Pretty Girl Rock. The, the weird thing about that is uh, everyone who's complained about that scene, watching it again, it's like from a distance and about four seconds long. It's not like it's a close-up of him belting it out. It's like it's this tiny need. little moment that's yeah. so effective. So effective. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. Two more real quick. And again, these are two that aren't necessarily bad, but felt sorry for the actors in the moment. Naomi Watts in St. Vincent. This is all you need to know about Naomi Watts. Maybe my favorite living actress. Yeah. Here's how you sum up her character in four words. Pregnant Russian prostitute slash stripper. That was five words with the slash. Okay. That's who she plays in this movie. And you watch it with the full accent and everything. And you watch it and you just think... Why would a great actress like Naomi Watts think she needed to play a pregnant Russian prostitute slash? He'll pay $100. $100? I pay more than that for one prescription. He said this is for epilepsy, for prostate flaring, and to soften the sheeting. That should have some value. For who? You? Yeah. He said 100 win. You take it or leave this. You can't sell this to get high. I felt really bad for her. Hopefully, she does have better choices, but you never know. She, of course, brings some conviction to it, like you'd expect from her, but it's a movie that has its heart in the absolute right place, but nevertheless is just full of cliches, and I couldn't get on board with it. The last one, Josh Snowpiercer, Bong Joon Ho. I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to say which character or which actor says the line. And I do have to give credit to. A Doug Loves Movies podcast from a couple months ago where someone said this line and I just cracked up laughing and realized that when it was uttered in the film, I didn't crack up laughing because the performer actually said it with so much conviction. There is a line in Snowpiercer where a character says, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know babies taste the best. <laughs> okay. that You can't pull. I'm not defending. I think Snowpiercer loses itself a little in that finale. I think it's really good. You can't pull a line of dialogue out of a film and say it's the worst. My whole point is, though, that that moment should be cringeworthy. And that line of dialogue separated like that out of context is probably the most cringeworthy moment of the year in screenplays, except in the moment because of Bong Joon-ho and because of the actor delivering it. It worked. It worked. I didn't laugh for even a second. So there you go. The cringeworthiest, some of them truly are even worthy. Josh, your next category. Let's get back to being positive here. This is best shot. And I already mentioned the knife rotating in the tire in Blue Ruin on an earlier show. I think it was, yeah, with the golden brick preview. Love that shot. Also, I think we both talked about the shot of Koba taking over the tank in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. That's really a Rivera moment there. Really, though... This category, it should be any shot from the documentary Monica Mana because it's the same shot throughout the entire thing. This is a series of single takes. Each is about 10 minutes long, and the shots focus on the passengers of a cable car as it travels up or down a mountain in Nepal. This is another project from Harvard's Sensory Ethnography Lab, which made my favorite film from last year, Leviathan. There's different directors here. But I'm going to go with, for my shot of the year, a relatively simple shot from Ida the black-and-white film set in 1960s Poland about a young nun who's taken by her aunt to learn about her family's past. Ida and the aunt, they travel to this village at one point, and they're driving in the aunt's car, which is 
starkly white. As they approach a farmhouse, there's this establishing shot of the house with a white sheet drying on a line and blowing gently in the wind. That's in the upper right corner of the frame. And then the white car comes in from the bottom left of the frame, drives across this dark field toward the sheet. And there's something magical about how it looks as if the sheet is pulling them in or at least enticing them towards it. And then we get this wonderful match cut. The director here is Pavel Pavelkowski that goes to a medium shot of the door to the farmhouse with a sheet bigger now fluttering across the screen as Ida and her aunt enter from the left. I'm sure I could spend time lending some thematic resonance to this, why it's composed this way, what it has to say about the themes of the movie. But I just love it for the composition alone. And this is a movie full yeah. of sophisticated composition. It really is. And I think Best Shot, that's one I wish I had glommed on to because so many really memorable shots. For me, just thinking off the top of my head, I just caught up with the Mike Lee movie, Mr. Turner. And there is a great match cut in that film that really took me back for a second as well. My next category is Best Performances by Actors We Take for Granted. Okay. Slash are basically playing themselves. Mm. And I think that's why we take them for granted, is that they just are kind of who they are or who we think they are on screen. And maybe we don't tend to think that they're acting enough. But you know what? Brad Pitt category? They're really good. And it's not my Brad Pitt category because he's always acting enough. He's acting enough for everybody on screen. My first one is Luke Wilson from The Skeleton Twins. He is this simple, nature-loving husband to Kristen Wiig. His name is Lance. And it's almost one of these cases like Fargo where you're asking yourself, is this a case where the director, Craig Johnson here, wants us to laugh at the Lance character a little bit to find him a little bit too unsophisticated, especially compared to the little more cultured wig and Bill Hader, her brother in the film. But to go back to a conversation we had last week about Foxcatcher and we were talking about Mark Ruffalo and how he's the best character in the movie. And I think you put it. If you were going to, what did you say, go on a car ride with him or have a beer with him? Of the three? Of the three main characters. He was the one, sure, you'd want to hang out with. Well, Lance is the one you'd want to hang out with in the Skeleton Twins. He really is the best character in the movie. And because of Luke Wilson's performance, he doesn't let us laugh at Lance. Are those shoes? Oh, yeah, kind of. They're a hybrid. Hybrid of a? Of, uh, you know, just shoes and a foot, the human foot. You know, some people use a knife and fork for those things. Yeah? Well, I'm not most people, babe, and I think that's why you love me, because I set myself aside from the pack. What about Ethan Hawke and Patricia Arquette in Boyhood, the Richard Linklater film? Wow. This is the dad that he's playing. You're going to have a beer with and talk girls or guys and music and movies and everything else. He's going to be the dad who gives you the Beatles mixtape like he does to the Eller Coltrane character in that movie. And of course, you learn later that Ethan Hawke really did do that for his kids in real life. Yeah, this is just who Ethan Hawke is. This is our sense of him as an actor. And he is basically playing it in this film. And I I think it's easy to overlook just how really good he is, how natural he is on screen. And I think Patricia Arquette is another actress that we largely take for granted who, for whatever reason, I kind of see her as that tough-minded, outspoken character Hmm. she plays in this movie. And I know you were very high on her performance. Yeah, I think those are both among the performances of the year. You're right, though. 
Hawk's doing Hawk yeah. very well. Arquette, that was just a real surprise to me. Mm. I don't know what my my sense of her was before this, which which made the performance a real revelation. Two more real quick. Peter Skarsgård in Night Moves, the Kelly Reichert film. He plays Harmon. He's kind of this isolated loner. He is, isn't he? He's <laughs> yes. this isolated, creepy <laughs> yes. loner who you're never quite sure you can trust. You can't really get a read on him. But there's tremendous pain and vulnerability there in the character as well. Basically, every character Peter Skarsgård has ever played. And then finally, Willem Dafoe in A Most Wanted Man. Speaking of often being creepy, he plays a banker named Tommy Brew. And I could have gone to his performance in Nymphomaniac 1 and 2 to Grand Budapest Hotel, where he plays another creepy character there, blatantly one of the villains of the movie. I just think he's an actor that we do perhaps take for granted a little bit, maybe because he plays similar types of characters from time to time. But there's never an uninteresting or untruthful moment when Willem Dafoe's on screen. You know what's weird about him? When he plays someone ostensibly normal, that seems odd. Yeah. And I think of like Antichrist. Th- that goes to some not normal places. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning when he's supposedly just this regular guy, psychotherapist or something like yeah. that, you're like, what? Willem Dafoe? Wait. Some, <laughs> yeah. He should be the Green Goblin. Something or... weird is going to happen here. <laughs> it does. Indeed. So that brings us to our final categories, Josh. So for my number one slot here, I went with a category we do always include at the wrap party, not necessarily the scene of the year, but a little more specific, most moving moment. I wanted to revisit that again because it always is a fun way to look at the films of the year and and categorize them a little differently and talk about what moved you. What's one of those scenes that maybe wasn't necessarily technically impressive, but just really hit you in the heart. And for me, it was seducing the disfigured man in Under the Skin. Yeah, it's a great moment. I've talked about, for me, how this movie, which is about many things to many people, for me, it's mainly about body image. And this is the one moment that really drove that home. Previous to this, Scarlett Johansson's alien had been fairly easily seducing men for the kill simply by presenting herself as they want her to look. She's just playing that part. She's driving around in a van, asking guys for directions. They get in the car. She kills them. That's what's been going on. So one night she picks up this guy who's wearing a hood. And it's not till he gets in the van and removes it that we realize his face is severely disfigured. He's played by a non-professional actor named Adam Pearson. So why do you shop at night then? People want me up. How? Very ignorant. What about your friends? So you don't have any friends? No. What about a girlfriend? How old are you? I'm 26. When was the last time you had a girlfriend? Never had one. The catch here is that Johansson, the alien character, doesn't bat an eye at his looks. She doesn't even register that there's something different about this guy. To her, he's He's only prey. Just prey. Um, But he mistakes her nonchalance for genuine affection. You can tell that this might be the first time in his life where someone hasn't batted an eye at him. He's not used to being looked at this way. Someone's talked to him like a human being. Exactly. And so what happens? He opens up with this gentle sense of gratitude that's just, it's so touching, even if there is this dark irony to the scene that her motives are hardly pure. Wow, great pick. And for me, truly moving moments was an honorable mention category. I can list them really quickly. The Lego movie, I'll just call it The Reveal. In the documentary, Mistaken for Strangers, there's the concert scene at the end. I'll just say Tom helping his brother with the microphone cord. And then three goodbyes. That's all I'll say. Three goodbyes, boyhood, startup, interstellar. 
Mm. Those were my truly moving moments. That brings us to laugh out loud moments. We'll go from tragedy to comedy, Josh, as I end with some of the moments that really genuinely made me laugh out loud, which I know sounds like we're texting each other or something when I say that, but... The reality is, how often do you actually laugh out loud at a movie? You can find movies humorous all the time. You can be completely with them and find them funny. But for them to actually provoke laughter, I think, is pretty rare. And it happened quite a few times for me this year. And I'll start with Inherent Vice. There is a scene, I mentioned this on Twitter after I saw the movie. There's a scene that I think is honestly, you could put it up there and say, this is the best Joaquin Phoenix acting moment, period. It's a reaction to a picture that Jenna did you Malone think that shows him. Oh my God, did I, I think wasn't, it worked? I wasn't It's quite the funniest sure. moment in the film. Oh man, it's just the realest, most crazy thing we've seen him do. And I include I'm still here in that. There's just something so surprising about yeah. it. It takes you so I off guess maybe guard. that's why I, I, I give it pause. But it feels so truthful. It did make me laugh. It did make me There's laugh. There's a moment where she shows him a picture. Yeah. All I'll say is heroin baby. And... The yeah. the yell he lets out. He let, yeah, he goes for, for it. me. This was the only redeeming part of not being able to watch this movie on the big screen. I had to catch up with Inherent Vice via screener, and I would normally bemoan that. But being able to rewind that moment and watch it three times made it all worth it. What made me laugh even harder out loud in that film was his reactions to Josh Brolin eating the chocolate banana oh, yeah. in the car. We're, yeah. we're just, I mean, it's what, 30 seconds yeah. maybe? The contortions he goes through. So good. So good. They came together. A movie we saw earlier in the year, mm-hmm. David Wayne premiered it here, or it was one of the early screenings anyway, at the Music Box here in Chicago. And this is his airplane-esque parody of rom-coms, and specifically New York City-based rom-coms. It stars Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. There are so many laugh-out-loud bits in this film, but the one that killed me the most is when it goes into a Nora Jones musical montage like we've seen and heard in 4,000 different movies. They've just sort of fallen in love. They've shared their first kiss. And then we see them walking through the city and they're cooking together and they're throwing leaves on each other in the park and they're, they're playing football with each other and their friends. And it goes from that to then... Nora Jones, the actual Nora Jones recording the song we're hearing for the movie soundtrack. And it really is just such a brilliant, incisive commentary on how contrived and prepackaged uh-huh. all of these types of movies are, how most movies are. And you see Rudd and Polar in the studio with Nora Jones and Adam Scott's there for right, some reason. Right. And so is John Stamos <laughs> for no reason at all. But it's John Stamos that cracked me up. The song, it was the last thing on your mind. So good. That theater that we saw it in at the music box, that was the most laugh out loud theater oh. that I was in all year. Oh, yeah. Was for me, they come together. Without a doubt as well. Alan Partridge, Steve Coogan in this scene. I thought I mentioned this on the show, but I couldn't find it in any of our show notes. Alan Partridge, the movie where he's playing this famous character of his on TV and he's a radio personality in this movie and there's a hostage situation and he goes outside to talk to the crowd and the police. He's one of the hostages and there's this moment where he realizes that the things he's saying are going over well with the crowd. Like he's a hostage but he starts actually performing almost like a stand-up comic. Um, Do you mind? It's not a radio road show. I'm trying to post a siege. Get away. Who said that? What's it like in there? Uh, scary, stressful, lots of shouting. A bit like being married again. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and there's a, there's a crazy person running around with a gun, so it's a lot like being married again. <laughs> and, uh, 
when I saw a guy with a shotgun in his mouth begging for mercy, then I definitely... You're, you're ahead of me. You're ahead of me. A lot of you are. And there's this moment where he says something kind of very matter-of-factly, and then he turns and does this just quick double-take, like, hey, I got you. I got you to the audience. And it's just one of those moments from Coogan that you see in so many of his performances where he's this kind of egomaniac, but he's just not a bad person. He just can't stop himself. He just can't stop himself from trying to get that kind of adulation, to get that love from someone. And he's also fantastic in the trip to Italy with Rob Brydon. I mentioned my favorite sequence there is where they're doing the fake interview from the Michael Parkinson show. My last two ones, Josh, I know you'll be on board with. Listen up, Philip. Featured this at the beginning of my interview with Jason Schwartzman and the director Alex Ross Perry, the stapler bit, yeah. where Schwartzman's character <laughs> is talking to a student who wants a recommendation letter from him, and he just says to her, I don't have time for this right now. Here's a piece of paper with some staples in it. <laughs> really up there among the best lines of the year. And finally, the Lego movie. Mm-hmm. I have now heard this movie 57 times. <laughs> In as it car. plays in, in the, the Kempinar family truckster <laughs> as my kids watch it over and over and over. And you know what? It still entertains me as I listen to it. And the moment I'm going to single out here, even though I could single out many funny moments, it's Batman's song. Darkness. No parents. Continue darkness. More darkness. Get it? The opposite of light. Black hole. Oh, so good. Batman song never stops being funny. Darkness. No, <laughs> no parents. <laughs> of course, I could have gone with honey, where are my pants? But no, <laughs> it is darkness, no parents. Like, what would the brooding Batman write if he could write a song? The brilliance of that is it's funny and then gets so repetitive to show that this is all Batman could come up with. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> just the levels of humor going on there. That's my laugh out loud movie of the year. In fact, we were rewatching it recently and then I was laughing so much the 12-year-old just turns to me and goes, "Boy, you really like this movie, don't you?" <laughs> That's kind of embarrassing, Josh. <laughs> I forgot. I've got one more hiding here. Snowpiercer. You could pick just about any Tilda Swinton line, yeah, but when she says, "Know your place, accept your place, be, be a, a shoe." shoe. <laughs> Again, among the best lines of the year. So I've now made it through all my candidates and all my categories. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions? That means you have no honorable mentions? Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Let's not get okay. crazy. Well, in the interest of time, let me just list two here. Best opening scene. I'm going to go with the bear hunt in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I guess you could consider Dawn of the Planet of the Apes for best Shakespeare adaptation, too. We both like that. <laughs> element of it. It's a little dig at our letterbox followers there. I like it, Josh. <laughs> Best fight scene. I'm going just straightforward fight scene. For me, Adrian Brody, Ray Fiennes, and Tony Revolori trading punches in Grand Budapest Hotel. That is good. One of my honorable mention categories was opening scenes. I've got Calvary with Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Joe, the beginning to that film from David Gordon Green, where it's just Gary Poulter and Ty mm-hmm. Sheridan in a conversation. And my third conversation, I don't know what it is about people talking that sometimes can be really compelling to open a film, but Nightcrawler, that great sequence we talked about during our review a month or so ago. And Under the Skin, the opening to that movie, it's really kind of three different scenes, but just in terms of putting you into this world and kind of saying, mm-hmm. catch up. You're going to have to put the pieces together here. It really is so mysterious and great. My last category, Josh, is Michael Fassbender moments. (laughs) 
Oh, man. All right. I could have made this one of the big five. I'm going to go pick something up to eat. Yeah. I'll be back. I'll be done here in about an hour. No, I've only got three, actually, and you mentioned one of them already. It is the I Love You All sequence from Frank. But then I have to go with X-Men Days of Future Past. Not a fan of this movie. Fan of Fassbender as Magneto. You abandon us all on the plane when he's arguing with James McAvoy and he takes over the plane. The plane starts crunching. Yeah, just because he's Magneto and he's Michael Fassbender and he can say a few words and crush a plane. And then stadium levitation. The stadium levitation sequence where he pulls into this baseball stadium and then picks it up from its foundation and starts to maneuver it to whatever he wants it to do. Again, Michael Fassbender... You completely believe in this CGI-filled sequence that he really is just picking up his arms and lifting that entire baseball stadium. It's the magic of movies. It's the magic of Fassbender. You don't really think he can do that. I just oh, want to make I, sure. No, he could. He <laughs> boy, could raise his voice oh and crush a plane. Do not fly you with are, Michael Fassbender. You are far gone. I think that's probably a good stopping point. Those are our top five we or don't know 50 what to call them best of the rest of 2014. <laughs> we want to know your picks. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Out this weekend, opening and limited release in Chicago. One of the ones we'll highlight, The Two Faces of January. It's an adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith thriller with Viggo Mortensen and Oscar Isaac, two actors I love, Kirsten Dunst in the movie as well. And it's the directorial debut of Hossein Amini, who was the screenwriter of the film Drive. The Imitation Game also opening in Chicago this weekend. Closeted Gay Genius Saves the Free World or something like that. It really should be a strong contender by all accounts for Best Picture winner in 2015. It stars Kira Knightley and the batch we can call him the batch in wide release exodus gods and kings christian bale wants joel edgerton to let his people go presumably the welsh <laughs> but, you know you've seen this I, yeah you and i gotta in? say real for, quick for all the casting concerns the controversy over this being cast with a non-jewish group of actors I thought it was way too many white people as well. That's part of the controversy. I I thought it was odd that they cast Boy George as Ramses. (laughs) That's who you're going with. That stood out to me. Well, a surprising performance. Could have made my list. Didn't know we had it in him. And yes, top five, the long awaited film adaptation of our popular film spotting segment written, directed by and starring Chris Rock. I can't believe he hasn't been on yet to promote it. Although the mess we made of the top five this This week, week. we just kind of blew it apart. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Next week on the show, we are sharing our top 10 films of 2014 part one. That's 10 through six. We can't, we really can't make fun of all these movies that have colon part one slash this. (laughs) That's right. We're just as bad. We do it ourselves this time. It is the top 10 films of 2014 mocking five armies. (laughs) Part 1A. (laughs) Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias will be here to class up the joint and actually say something insightful. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from Willis Earl Beale. It's from his 2013 album, Nobody Knows. Beale is also the star of the great 2014 film, Memphis. You can find more information about his music at willisearlbeale.com. Check out the movie at memphis-film.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.